Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA-certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our MSE ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. This is episode number four, or excuse me, volume number four um, of Pastor Brad's Corner, uh, a little sort of um, series on this Ministry Minded Podcast in which I seek to uh, just take some time out to reflect, to chew. Uh, that's the word I keep liking. I, I keep like to uh, keep uh, using a lot when I'm describing these episodes. But I just like to uh, chew and meditate and just kind of reflect on um, uh, mainly the sermon that I was uh, privileged with uh, delivering uh, on the Sunday previous, and then just also some perhaps some uh, illustrations or articles or further uh, studies which can help elaborate on. On those points um, that I was trying to make um, in the sermon on Sunday. And so in Pastor Brad's Corner, I just want to kind of sit and reflect on that, just kind of spend some more time sort of just thinking about these things um, that I was uh, privileged with preaching and declaring. Um, and uh, to that end, um, I want to just jump in now and just talk about the sermon. 
this past Sunday, uh, I was able to preach through uh, at least the, the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11. Uh, I've been stepping through Mark, um, the gospel of Mark, ever since I came to Stonington Baptist Church last year. Uh, we've been stepping through it chapter by chapter, uh, stepping through it methodically, uh, and stepping through uh, each uh, seen uh, as we have them, and just seeing what sort of uh, gospel truths that we can uh, get out of these chapters, out of these scenes where Jesus is uh, speaking to uh, his apostles, and just looking at all the ways in which Mark presents Jesus as this unexpected Messiah. That's the title I've taken uh, for this series on the Gospel of Mark Unexpected, because every every step of the way, you see Jesus doing, saying, interacting uh, in ways and with people uh, that is unexpected, that is unconventional, that isn't necessarily what we might think um, he he would do or say, especially as one who is supposedly the Messiah. And um, I, I think that's what is so fascinating about this Gospel that we have it, is it just presents this view of Jesus that isn't like the other Gospels. It's a view of Jesus that is, well, not to just harp on the word, it's it's unexpected. It's a view of Jesus that is surprising. It catches us off guard, and it, and it often makes us uh, wonder, is this really the Messiah? Uh, with the ways that he's uh, interacting with these people isn't what we naturally expect. So this past week I preached on verses 1 through 11 uh, of chapter 14. This, of course, is this incredible scene where Jesus is... Um, is anointed, uh, at least in Mark's gospel, it's by an unnamed woman. Uh, but we know, of course, from other gospel accounts that this is Mary, uh, Martha's sister, uh, and also the, bro- uh, the sister of Lazarus as well. Um, the point I was, uh, really striving to make, because there's this really fascinating word. Let me see if I can, uh, read it here. Yeah, it, it, it becomes, so you have this scene, it, it, it jumps in verse 3 to where Jesus and his apostles are back at Bethany at the house that it says in, in Mark, at the home of Simon the leper, and he's reclining uh, at the table with them. They're eating, you know, as is the customary uh, way to dine in these, in this first century. And he's there and it says this woman comes in the middle of this feast and she breaks this jar and she, this jar of very, very expensive oil. Uh, all you essential oil fans out there uh, will know that if she broke this, <laughs> it was something that was met with a lot of criticism. And it, that's what it says in verse four. This is Mark 14, verse four. Some were expressing indignation. They were just completely flabbergasted that she would break this entire jar over Jesus. And it says uh, they were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. And it's just fascinating that in this scene you have the apostles and they see this moment happen when this uh, woman she comes to Jesus and she is reverencing Jesus in such a profound way uh, she's reverencing him in a way that uh, the best way that she knows how uh, even perhaps even if she doesn't understand all that uh, is going to take place all that this moment represents she breaks this oil to worship this Jesus. This Jesus, by the way, who has uh, 
who who has uh, already raised her brother from the dead uh, and now she is uh, seeing and sensing that this moment that that something is happening something is happening with um something is happening with uh, Jesus in, in in these in this holy week in this hour in which in which um in which Jesus is proceeding towards the cross and so Mary here breaks this jar of oil, uh, breaks it, and in, in the apostles' minds here, um, she is wasting it, w- wasting all of this essential oil on Jesus. And I, I, that word waste there really jumps out to me. Uh, and as I was studying, I was just hit and struck by this fact that Jesus calls... Well, uh, let's. I'll, I'll take you to another passage, because this is... The, in John chapter 12 you have sort of a parallel account of this scene. And this is the, a scene in which we are actually told that this woman who is uh, perf- uh, is anointing Jesus is actually Mary. And we are told here, it says, then one of the, his, this is John chapter 12, verse 4, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray Jesus, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of of what was put in it. So Judas, um, as is his deal, he is a a a scum of an apostle, so to speak, and he is embezzling money out of the apostles' money bags. And here he is seeing this moment in which this very expensive jar of oil is, in his mind, being wasted on Jesus. And he says, "Why is this perfume being just?" wasted being allowed to spill on the ground and it's fascinating to me that john the 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 apostle john points out that this person who is complaining about the scene is judas because in john 17 uh, this is will come full circle i promise john 17 verse 12 uh, jesus is is praying uh, his high priestly prayer, so to speak, the prayer that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John seventeen twelve, he says this while he's praying. He says, while I was with them, meaning his apostles, I was protecting them by your name. This is Jesus praying to God. I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them has lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Obviously, by the son of destruction, he is referencing Judas Iscariot himself. That's the one who has everywhere been prophesied to uh, fulfill uh, the necessary uh, events in which Jesus would be betrayed, be delivered up to his captors, in which all of the events of Jesus' passion and death will eventually come about. But it's interesting to me that Jesus, in this prayer, is referencing and referring to Judas um, as the son of destruction, or if you have another translation, of the Bible, it would be the son of perdition. And if you look at this word in the Greek, one of the parallel uh, sort of synonyms of this word is, you guessed it, a waste. So here, if you go back to Mark, you have this really fascinating scene in which Judas is calling Mary wasteful in her extravagant worship of Jesus when in reality, the waste in this scene isn't Mary, it's Judas. The waste of the scene 
is Judas for having been with Jesus for three odd years now, depending on your timeline. There's definitely at least at least three years that has been led up to this point. He has been with Jesus. He has been privy to every single uh, miracle, to all sorts of events and preaching and sermons and instruction and what the gospel means. And yet it still has not resonated with him. It still has not come to grip him such that he sees this scene as not what it should be, as a scene in which in which Jesus is being worshipped rightly as the King and the Messiah. He sees it as what a waste. And so we come full circle. The waste of the scene is Judas for not realizing what was happening in this moment. And I think to me that's what makes this scene so tragic. That's what makes the tragedy of the Gospels so profound is that there's countless people that were right in and around Jesus seeing these things and they didn't get it. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't uh, catch the moment, so to speak. Uh, I, this is another point that I tried to make on, on, on Sunday in my sermon is just the fact that uh, throughout Jesus's ministry uh, and throughout the gospels, we often uh, demonize the Pharisees. We often make them into the bad guys. We often make them into the people that are just always uh, sort of plotting and scheming. And yeah, they they don't they don't present themselves in a good light. The, the scribes and the Pharisees don't do themselves any favors when it comes to uh, presenting themselves in a positive light throughout the Gospels. But I think often we're pharisaical in how we view the Pharisees. Uh, and what I mean by that is we often see them as so far uh, removed from even what we could possibly be capable of. And I think that's exactly the point that the gospel writers, and I think that's exactly the point that Jesus himself is tr everywhere trying not to make. I think he wants us to see us, see ourselves, not in, in, I think he wants us to see ourselves in the Pharisees, in the apostles, the people who don't always get it, who don't always see exactly what Jesus is doing. And he's seeing, and I think the lesson to me, when he says here, uh, going back to Mark chapter 14, where he talks about how, uh, well, let me read this, where, so, uh, the apostles have scolded Mary for her seeming wasteful display. And then Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you. You can, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for the burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So you have here Jesus is saying that whenever the gospel is going to be preached, that she is going to be memorialized. And it's fascinating to me because Mark doesn't mention her name. We know from John 12 that this is Mary, uh, Martha's sister. And here, G included in this scene is the fact that Jesus says she is going to be memorialized and not her name, but her devotion. And that's the point, is that when the gospel is preached, what is what comes right to the surface, what comes, what is always memorialized is what? A grateful response 
to the gospel. A grateful recognition of what is involved in the gospel. And such is what he's saying here, is that Mary is not memorialized in her name being remembered forever. She's memorialized for the devotion, the the uncalculable, the incalculating. She doesn't take time to measure whether her devotion is worth it. She says, I love Jesus. I'm going to reverence Jesus because I'm grateful for him and for what he has done and for whatever else he is going to do. And it's that devotion that rises to the surface. And it's in stark contrast to the verses previous to this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14 and in the verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14 where it just it, it pinpoints exactly the point that the people surrounding Jesus who didn't get it were people who didn't understand grace. They were the ones who were conspiring against Jesus, thinking that he was just some wasteful, uh, prodigal teacher. And in fact, he was, yeah, a good teacher, but he was more than that. He was the Lord, the Son of David, the Lord of all. And so this scene is not wastefulness. This worshiping of Mary is not a way in which she is wasting something on some no-name teacher from Nazareth. She is rightly reverencing the Lord Jesus. She is displaying for us, for all eternity, as he says here, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, she is portraying our right response to the gospel, namely gratefulness, reverence, devotion. And this speaks to me because this convicts me because we can talk about the gospel. We can talk about what the gospel means and all those sorts of things. And do we ever let that gospel speak to our hearts and lives in ways that changes the way we live? Of course, uh, that's where we have to disseminate to the fact that, yeah, of course, that our response doesn't necessarily make the gospel what it is, but have you responded to the gospel? What What is your response when the good news is preached? Good news in, informs us as, of something, yes, but it also informs us of something in order to do something else. And it's not that that doing necessarily has any inherent value in terms of whether we are saved or not. It's it's just going back and talking about uh, what we find in James chapter 2, where it's not that your good works are somehow making your faith actually faith. It's just how is your faith being lived out? How is the gospel being lived out in your own life? And I think that this is exactly what Mary is talking about. Or not Mary talking about. This is exactly what Mary is portraying and picturing for us. The right response to the gospel. And the only right response is one of grateful surrender and devotion. You know, there was a quote that I was uh, going to include in my sermon, which I didn't, but I'm going to give to you now, um, because the, the one of the that was really the, the the driving point of my sermon, and I hope that came through is just the fact that that's that's the point. The point of this is that the only right response to the gospel is one of grateful devotion and surrender. And this this come this quote comes from Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite orators and preachers and, and and writers. And he says this in regards to this very scene. He says, 
that quote Alexander McLaren, everything but giving our whole selves to Jesus is a waste. It is not waste to lay ourselves and our possessions at his feet. And I think that's where you get this great juxtaposition of this scene. Is that it's not a waste to lay our entire selves out in front of Jesus' feet like Mary. What is a waste is to not do that. Judas. And that's where you get this incredible contrast in the scene. Is that when the gospel is preached, what does it do in your heart and soul and mind? Are you uh, moved are you uh, moved to just be in uh, uh, living with gratitude and gratefulness for what Jesus has done and will do and has promised to do um, in and of himself through his passion and death? And that's why I think this scene is so amazing uh, and why it's so powerful. It's because, and the other point I, I will I will move on after this, is, is that the other point of this is that the fact that when Jesus... Um, or I should say it this way, just like Mary, she didn't really calculate the cost of whether this worship was worth it. Neither did Jesus. Neither did Jesus calculate the cost of his love and whether it was worth, quote, wasting it on people like us, on sinners, on people who wouldn't uh, always reverence him rightly. And that's where you get the amazing gospel message of the scene. Jesus didn't think it a waste to shed his blood for sinners who would keep on sinning. And that's the amazing good news that we have in the gospel, is that Jesus goes to the cross knowing exactly what he is about to do for the very people he's about to do it for, people who would probably remain rebellious, who would remain stumbling and fumbling over themselves as they uh, kept on going throughout their lives. And this is the amazing uh, truth of the gospel as we have it, uh, not just in Mark, but in the whole scriptures. It's the gospel where Jesus doesn't uh, count it a waste to sacrifice himself for us. And that's the message um, that I have just been really impassioned uh, to give and to share, and uh, that I've really been striving to uh, just really center and gear my, not just my whole ministry around, but my whole life around, is just that message. Because I think that's the message that, that changes people. Um, and I, I, let me transition now, because there's an article I wanted to highlight, and I've been wanting to highlight this article for a long time. It's an, it's an older article. It was actually written back in 2019. Um, and it's called, uh, uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, convinced me to abandon my, my dream. It's written by a guy named Chase Replogle, uh, for Christianity Today. And he writes on this idea of pastoring the imaginary church. And as, uh, this, this article just resonates with me so, uh, intensely. Um, let me, let me just read you, uh, read you a couple passages from this article because he's talking about this. He's telling the story about how he, um, failed to see the ministry that was all around him, right in front of him, because he was constantly dreaming and focusing on the ministry that he hoped to one day have and be a part of. And he writes this. This is Chase writing, quote, I started hosting a Bible study on Sunday evenings in my in-law's basement. I needed some justification for the student loan payments I was making each month. Each month. 
My motives weren't bitter or reactionary. I was trying to salvage some part of the calling I thought I had received from God. There was something about pastoral ministry I couldn't let go of completely. I didn't have any vision for it, just a sense of responsibility that kept me showing up. For three years, we met in that basement, ate a meal, sang a song, and worked through scripture. The whole time, I continued searching job boards for open church positions. My weekly basement sermons only left me daydreaming about that imaginary church from my seminary assignment. I wanted to go somewhere adventurous. I wanted to build something great. I wanted to achieve something impactful for the kingdom. After all, I had spent the last decade collecting bits and pieces of training and experience which formed my vision of church. I didn't recognize any of that vision in those Sunday evening basement services. I was hesitant to even call it a church. My vision had become my expectation and my discouragement. In the midst of this, I came across Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, Life Together. I'm not sure what motivated me to pick it up. Maybe it was deceptive, its deceptively small size. Whatever re- my reason for starting the book, I was an entirely unprepared for four words on page 27. And this is Chase quoting Bonhoeffer. God hates visionary dreaming. Bonhoeffer continues, It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. And that's where Chase ends his quoting of Bonhoeffer. Chase continues, though, I'm not sure Bonhoeffer could have written anything about leadership more fundamentally opposed to what I had learned and imagined practicing in ministry. Bonhoeffer's words collapsed the scaffolding on which I had erected my ideal vision of a church and my role as its pastor. His words exposed something shameful I had traded a real congregation for a dream one, blind to the work God was doing right in front of me. The pastor's first call, get this, the pastor's first call is not to envision a church, but to receive one. We lead by discerning how Christ is forming a community and by being one of the first to accept that fellowship with gratitude. The pastor is not an entrepreneur we are called to project uh, we are called to a project already underway so i'd like to offer a dramatically reinterpreted concept of pastoral vision true visionary leadership is being first to recognize what god has already formed bonhoeffer convinced me to abandon dreaming a church is never abstract. A congregation is never a demographic goal or an imaginary gathering. We are not called to a possibility, but to God's work at a specific moment in this place with these people. I hope you all followed that. Uh, I, when this podcast goes um, up, I'll make sure to put the link to this story in the notes. 
Um, I'm going to put a link uh, to this story um, in the notes for this podcast because I want you to get it and really chew on those words because it it pricks me. I hope it pricks you. I hope it really resonates with you. Just this fact that we are not called to some imaginary, uh, idealistic church ministry that we hope to one day realize, some potential church that we hope to one day have in front of us, full of people of uh, that we hope to uh, one day be able to minister to. That's not what God has called us to. That's not what God has called me to. He's not called me to realize some vision of ministry. He has called me to minister to the people that are right in front of me, uh, flesh and blood people that are dealing with hard things, with suffering, with heartache, with anxiety, with, with hard times, with grievous situations. You know, I can, this speaks to me because it speaks to my own journey of faith. I can tell you exactly that I was in the exact position as Chase here in this article thinking that I needed to be in some sort of position in order for God to use me for the, quote, kingdom. I needed to have some sort of ministerial position and title next to my name in order for me to really be used of God. I was constantly uh, disregarding and avoiding the ministry that was right in front of me. And I went through that. I'll tell you a testimony there was a time when I, I was at his church. Uh, I was a youth pastor at a church, and I was there for a very, very short amount of time. And I was there because I thought that this church would, um, you know, sort of give me something, uh, give me uh, something on my resume, so to speak, and that this would be, quote, the church that would lead to uh, my ministerial career or whatever. And I remember when that church didn't work out, I would, I mean, this is kind of overdramatic, but I had some sort of existential identity crisis because uh, all of a sudden I had been working in the secular field and then all of a sudden God had put me in this church and then very quickly he had made it evident that this was not the church where I needed to be and he took me out of that ministry position. And it was sort of through that, it, that was really sort of, I would call it the crucible in which I learned this very lesson that Chase learned. That ministry is not having some ministerial title and position. It's just loving your neighbor. It's just going out of your way to not only uh, live the gospel with your actions, but to preach the gospel with your words to those who are all around you. Secular or not, whether you're working at Chick-fil-A or whether you're working in a youth department, you are in ministry. I was in ministry even as I was working in the secular workforce. And yet I had, for so long, I had disregarded that. I disregarded that. That was a number of years ago because I was so enamored and engrossed with this idea that I had to have some sort of... Uh, church to be in that I was uh, that I had to realize some sort of uh, ideal vision of quote ministry and I had neglected the the ministry that was right in front of me and that's what I I pray to continue even to this day uh, the Lord has uh, grown me a lot um, th through that experience and even now as I reflect on this article by Chase 
it it still speaks to me. <laughs> it hasn't this article, even though it's a year old, it hasn't lost any of its impact, at least on me. I pray it's encouraging to you. Because uh, I pray that I'm never caught up in this idea that I have to sort of realize my vision for church. That I have to realize my vision of whatever I want this church to be. Actually, to go back to what Chase said so eloquently, is that I'm called to a project already being carried out. I'm called to a project in this church, so to speak, that's already underway, uh, to a moving of the Holy Spirit and, and a working of the gospel in this church, in this community that's already taking place. And what my calling is, is to shepherd it and keep it going, to keep pressing forward, to keep uh, standing for sound doctrine and for the truth, even as this work is going forward, to memorialize all of the uh, the stories of the gospel that we have that we were mentioning earlier in our in our devotion to the Lord Jesus and all those sorts of things. It's to come alongside people who are already engrossed in ministry and to encourage them and shepherd them and to carry them on and keep the ministry moving forward. And I think that's what I love about this story. I love about this article. I love about uh, this gospel that we have. It calls us to a ministry project already underway. And so therefore, whatever imaginary vision that I have uh, in my own head of what church should be, um, I don't have to realize that. I don't have to have that be the, quote, measure of my ministerial success, because it's not. The measure of ministerial success is not my vision of church. It's Jesus's gospel being faithfully preached and proclaimed and carried out to neighbors and to community members. The measure of ministerial success is faithfulness. That's what I've really come to realize. And and that's what I pray. I pray for one, for me, that I'm never just, uh, I, that I'm never enamored by, uh, you know, the, the visionariness of ministry that is often so engrossing uh, and tantalizing. Um, I pray rather that I'm uh, engrossed by the flesh and blood people that I've been called to minister to, that I've been called to pour my life into, that I've been called to uh, share the gospel, to share heartache, and to share um, grace with. That's what I'm praying. That's my calling to me. That's what matters. Um, I hope that's been an encouragement to you. Thanks so much for listening uh, to this edition of the Ministry Minded Podcast. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on Anchor Podcasts. If you're feeling gracious, you can leave me a review there too. The five-star ones are really appreciated. Uh, But thank you as always for listening and commenting and subscribing. I'll see you in the next episode. Blessings. Blessings.